This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So I think what we're going to do is I'm going to talk for a few minutes and read you maybe a page, page and a half from the book, and then we're going to jump into the conversation. Um, you know, I started writing this book about a year or two before Donald Trump entered the election campaign. So even though I've been talking a lot about Trump, the themes of fear and the themes of threat and risk and a sense of a world upended these are themes that predate the Trump story. And I know that when we get into the conversation in about 10 minutes, we're going to talk a lot about these broader themes. But because of the Trump moment, I do want to begin by just reiterating how absolutely bizarre our political moment is. And I wake up every morning, and I don't want to speak for all of your politics, but I'm guessing many of you wake up every morning turn on NPR or whatever your news of choice is, listen to the latest bizarre headlines about the president promising to nuclear bomb a country or torture terrorism suspects or beat up criminal suspects or reverse protections for one vulnerable group and one marginalized group after the next. You wake up and you listen to this and you think, this can't be happening. This isn't the reality I came to expect. This isn't the normalcy I came to expect. And then I have my first cup of coffee, and I start waking up a little bit, and I realize, actually, this is the reality we're in. And trying to understand that reality as a journalist, but also simply as a human being, has become something of a consuming passion for me. You know, I started reporting on Trump at the end of 2015. I got a call from my editors at The Nation, and they wanted me to start doing stories on the language Trump was using to connect with his audience. And I kind of thought and hoped that it would be a temporary beat. And unfortunately, that temporary beat is now nearly two years old, and it shows no sign of abating. And Jesse and Amanda will remember, I came to their house in March of 2016. And the week before, I'd been to the Nevada caucus, the Republican Party caucus, and I'd had an experience there which pretty much shattered me for the month of March, maybe beyond. And I went to their house and I told them about it. And what I had found, I went to Sparks, Nevada, and at the time, Trump was really playing the Islamophobia card as much as he could and in the crudest, most toxic ways that he could. And he was talking about a total and complete ban on Muslims entering the country and so on. And I went and I decided that anyone who said they were going to vote for Trump at the caucus, I'd ask them not what they thought about the economy, not what they thought about the environment or any of these other things. I'd ask them what they thought about Muslims. And I wasn't going for people who looked particularly crazy. I was just asking people, are you voting for Trump? And if they said yes, the next question was, what do you think of Muslims? And one person after another told me, first of all, that Muslims should be banned. Second of all, that Islam as a religion should be banned from the country. And several of them said to me that they would give Muslims a choice. And the choice, they said, was the trench or exile. And I said, the trench. And this elderly man said to me, yes, the trench. And he mimicked a gunshot to the head. And at that point, I thought, all right, we are going down a rabbit hole and we are going down it very, very quickly that we have become so consumed by fear and so consumed by worst case scenarios and so consumed by a sense of being besieged by enemies seen and unseen on all sides that it's reshaping who we are as a culture, as a community, as a political structure in unimaginable ways. And so even though the book isn't about Trump, it, of course, morphed into being about the Trump moment. Um, you know, I've been reporting for about 25 years, roaming around America, going to all corners of the country, 
And what really gets me is when I can sort of go into communities or spaces that haven't really been reported on and try and tell a story. And when I was a very young journalist in the mid-1990s, there were two party conventions in San Diego, California, in the summer of 1996. And the first was the Republican convention, the one that was nominating Bob Dole to be the presidential candidate. And I wasn't nearly senior enough at the time to be credentialed to go to a major party convention. But there was another convention. It was the US Taxpayers Party convention. And it was this sort of wingnut, right-wing, conspiracy-based party led by a guy called Howard Phillips. And it believed all kinds of loony things, like climate change was an illusion, and women shouldn't have the right to an abortion, and the Federal Reserve was sort of linked up with the Freemasons in some kind of conspiracy to take over the world. And the United Nations was this evil thing that was undermining American sovereignty. And I reported on it almost as a sort of, you know, bizarre Americana story, this weird fringe thing on the edge of the American political system. Of course, you fast forward 20 years and almost all of those crazy US taxpayer party ideas are now mainstreamed Republican Party Trumpist ideology. That's where the Republican Party has gone. It's gone towards this fringe and in doing so has normalized and exploited this culture of fear. Now, I'm going to read you, I don't want to read too much from this book because I want to keep it a conversation, but I do want to read you a page in a bit. Whenever and wherever we divide people into us and them, powerful political and psychological forces are unleashed. What we fear and how we gauge risk is all too often a product of these other narratives. In America, for example, a poor person or a black or brown person is far more likely than a well-to-do white person to be viewed as inherently dangerous, as representing a fundamental threat to our well-being. Sometimes these views are conscious, but oftentimes as shown in the groundbreaking research of psychologists Mazarin Banaji, Anthony Greenwald, and their Project Implicit team, the biases exist deep below our conscious surface, influencing our behavior without the conscious us even being aware of their existence. Of course, we also routinely miscalculate risks surrounding events that have nothing to do with the schisms of race and class in America. We overestimate, for example, the likelihood of being attacked by a shark while swimming in the ocean, and we underestimate the risk of dying of mosquito-borne diseases. We are more terrified of ick factor diseases like Ebola than a more mundane but infinitely greater killing machines like the flu or asthma. We fear flying more than driving, despite the latter being a massively more dangerous pastime. What is the common thread? It is, I believe, that too often we calculate risk, not by the probability of an event occurring, but by the number of news items or talk radio minutes or Facebook postings or movie scenes devoted to a topic. As a result, we fear terrorism more than run-of-the-mill non-political gunmen, despite the fact that by orders of magnitude, it is the latter who year in and year out kill the most Americans. After all, a single large-scale terrorist attack is guaranteed to generate vastly more headlines, news stories, and follow-up feature articles on the victims than are the everyday murders by gun violence or suicides by gun violence that over time adds up to tens of thousands of fatalities a year. An outbreak of Ebola is a gimme for the front pages simply because it is such a nasty, ugly, stuff-of-nightmares way to die. But the flu, tuberculosis, and malaria despite these diseases having killed millions upon millions of people over the course of recent human history, are seen as yawns, unlikely to generate the sort of sensational coverage that the Ebola outbreak produced in 2014. Miscalculating risk comes with consequences. It influences the places we go and the medicines we take. It alters the way we parent our children and the interactions we have with our neighbors. It affects how we police our cities and how we think about our borders. And of course, it skews our political preferences. Now, the challenge for me as a journalist is how do we understand those skewed political preferences? And how do we understand those consequences? And what happens when fear becomes our political currency? What happens when he who screams loudest gets elected? 
And what happens when he who promises vengeance against any and all enemies stirs up the crowd into a mob? And those are the questions at the heart of this book. And that's probably as good a place as any for me to stop and Andre to start. Thank you. Thank you, Sasha. So this is going to be a conversation between us, and I'm going to comment on things that Sasha is saying, but I'm also going to be asking questions because I really enjoyed the book. And one of the things that I kept thinking about as I was reading it, uh, I remembered Simon Critchley, the philosopher from New School. His argument was that fear is something that every state, every government throughout the history is using. And I was wondering, to what extent do you think that this is, there is a new quality to this contemporary fear? Because this is one of your main points, that this fear is in many ways new. Yeah, I think that if you go through human history, fear has always, to a greater or lesser degree, been present and always, to a greater or lesser degree, been used to mobilize political forces. And you can see it in political tracts like Machiavelli's The Prince, you can see it in modern philosophical tracts that there is an understanding that fear can be used to secure power. And certainly in American history, there's a strain of fear that goes back all the way to the colonial era. You could look at the Salem witch trials. You can look at some of the slavery revolts and the reactions to those slavery revolts. You can look at the ways in which powerful people and powerful corporations reacted when workers tried to unionize. You can see it in the Red Scares in the 1920s and again in the 1950s and 60s, obviously with McCarthyism as the key point there in the 1950s. There's nothing new about fear. I think the new thing about our, mo our moment is twofold. The first of them is the social amplification that goes on through media developments. The fact that social media in particular breaks down geophysical space in a way that even television didn't, and certainly radio didn't, and certainly before that, newspapers and the telegraph and all these other forms of communication couldn't do. But social media creates a global living room. So if an event happens 10 or 20,000 miles away, we no longer think of it as happening 10 or 20,000 miles away because it's happening on our smartphone or our tablet or our computer and it feels immediate. If a terrorist bomb attack goes off in, I don't know, Lagos, or somewhere in Malaysia, or somewhere in Egypt, instead of us thinking that's a horrible event, but it's a long, long, long way away, we think, oh my God, it's in our living room, we're vulnerable. And that ability to work out what's a reasonable fear given who we are and where we are, and what's an unreasonable fear, in the social media age gets shrunken. And I think Ebola would be the other case in point. Ebola was an epidemic that caused mayhem in three countries in West Africa. And then there were clusters in a few other countries in Africa. It didn't spread beyond Africa. It didn't spread into Europe. It didn't spread into the United States, except for a few public health workers who had been in Africa trying to control the disease. Now, it was a serious issue. I'm not saying we should all have ignored it. I'm not saying we shouldn't have poured resources into dealing with it. It was a serious issue. But it wasn't as immediate a risk to Americans as vast numbers of Americans seem to think it was. And that struck me when I started looking at the data. When you looked at what happened in the Ebola epidemic, when I believe four Americans died. During that epidemic, 5% of Americans said they were changing their travel plans. Now, if you think of the numbers of Americans who are traveling on a daily basis, 5% of Americans spread over many, many months, that's millions and millions of people changing their travel plans. Those millions of people were not all sightseers in Liberia. They just weren't. They were people who were going to Paris or London or Berlin until the Ebola epidemic grabbed the headlines, and then completely irrationally, they changed their travel plans. Um, the other thing that struck me in that period was the numbers of Americans who said Ebola was the single greatest threat facing America. And at the height of that Ebola epidemic, more Americans were saying that Ebola was the single greatest threat than that poverty was, despite the fact one in six Americans were living in such systemic chronic poverty that they couldn't feed themselves properly. One in six Americans are food insecure. But as the hysteria took off, our abilities to calibrate risk went down. And I do think a large part of that was social media generated. So the first thing is the way we communicate shrinks space in a weird way that we haven't yet sort of fully got a handle on. The second thing is 
we have a political moment that lends itself to fear-based politics. So when you have the kind of omnipresent angst that we have, whether it's around terrorism or disease or child kidnappings or all these other things that we're saturated with in the news, it lends itself to a candidate like Donald Trump who doesn't try and tamp down fear but tries to exploit it. And you're absolutely right that throughout our history, fear has been part of our political motif. But we've been quite lucky. For most of our history, our top political leaders have been fairly responsible in tamping down fear instead of playing to it. Not, not every moment in time. But take the Great Depression. It was Germany during the Great Depression that fell to fear-based fascistic political leadership. America elected Roosevelt, who went on the radio and said the only thing to fear is fear itself. And he tried to tamp down fear and build up social optimism. And we're now essentially in the place, I'm not saying the analogy is exact, but our politics in 2017, in terms of how we use and react to fear, resembles much more how Germany dealt with fear in the 1930s than how America dealt with fear in the 30s. Now I cannot resist but push you a little bit further. Are we entering into something that might be called fascism? You know, I've written a bunch about this, and I think, you know, it, it, on the one hand, it's too easy to bandy about words like fascism, because fascism isn't just about a sort of particularly demonic, charismatic individual, but it's also about the structures that come from that, and the breakdown of the rule of law and the replacement of a sort of moral code with a distinctly fascist legal code and political code. I don't think we're there yet. We're not seeing death squads roaming the streets yet. We're not seeing political dissidents interned and so on. I do think that Trump's persona is fascistic. And again, it's always, you know, I'm a little bit wary of over-psychologizing. But when you look at how Trump views the world, this is clearly a man who believes that might is right. It's clearly a man who believes that you express power through violence and who believes that diplomacy, compromise, and all the other nuances of democracy are weak and are fat. And I think in that moment, forces are unleashed that definitely tend towards fascistic. Um, you, you know, one, one of the most unpleasant parts of our moment is trolling. And anybody who's involved in progressive politics, progressive journalism, knows that when you write something or when you say something in the Trump era in public, there's a pretty good likelihood you're going to get a whole bunch of people sending some really unpleasant, threatening emails and Twitter feeds your way. And, you know, again, it's not classic fascism, but it certainly has a fascist characteristic. Yeah, I mean, the, the ultimate absurdity is, you know, I'll write articles and I'll accuse Trump's people of sort of fascist tendencies and I'll routinely get responses that essentially and I'll summarize it because they're usually a sort of page or two screed but essentially say how dare you call me a fascist may you and your family rot in hell I'm going to kill you and you know I mean at that point you've got a distinctly fascist culture emerging if people think you say anything I don't like and I'm going to threaten to kill you and that, you know, that is how you eventually morph into paramilitarism, death squads, and everything else. So the answer is, I don't think we're there, but I think there are some deeply disturbing strains that mm. are emerging. I was in Greece uh, for most of the summer, and two, two points that come to mind. First was a friend who is a leftist, who is a political activist. She's not using Facebook, so I asked her, how come? And she said, well, you know, I become angry, and then at some point, I start to be afraid. It was a very interesting thing, and I think it points to the social amplification and the sense of fear that many people, political activists including, feel. Yeah, and I, I think it goes beyond politics. Um, one of the sections in my book deals with parenting and with education. And, you know, m most people in this room look to be at least 30, 35 years old. How many, how many people here, when, when you were growing up, were allowed by your parents to roam your neighborhood with your friends when you were 10 or 11 years old, unattended, unaccompanied by adults. Almost everybody. And certainly when I was growing up in the 1970s in London, which was a fairly you know, socially chaotic time, I would go on bike rides, I'd go play cricket and football in the, play, in the park with my friends, and I'd come home you know, maybe 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening, and that was just what kids did. Well, nowadays, most parents are terrified to let their kids out of their sight. 
They, they, they wouldn't in a million years let them go 10 minutes walk by themselves in a city to a playground. Even though crime rates in 2017 are a fraction what they were 30 or 40 years ago. And I went to a school in Salt Lake City, just outside Salt Lake, very affluent preschool, very affluent suburb, and it was a Montessori school. And it was a weird Montessori school because it wasn't marketing its liberal education philosophy, which most Montessori schools do. It was marketing its security systems. It was marketing the 10-foot wall it had in the playground. It was marketing the computer entrance controls it had, so you had to have fingerprints before you could get in. It was marketing the computer streams all of the classrooms had, so you can monitor whether or not your preschooler was being abused in the classroom. It was completely crazy, and I interviewed the parents, and they were wrapped up in fear. And there were a couple that really struck me. One of them was a man who had a degree in criminal justice, and so he knew the data. And I said to him, well, you do know, don't you, that 2016, I think it was 2016 or 2015, America is far less violent than it was when you were growing up. And he said, I know, but I see these stories all the time on the news and they scare me. And I said, how old were you when you started walking to school alone? He said, I think first grade or second grade. And I said, how old is your daughter before you're going to let her walk to school? And he said, oh, I would never let her walk to school before eighth or ninth grade. And he got this sort of beetroot, red, angry face, and he started talking about all the stories he saw on the news about bad things happening. And the second person I met there was a woman who had gone into a sort of po almost like a PTSD state after the school shootings and then after Aurora, Colorado, when somebody had gone into a movie theater and shot it up and killed a bunch of people. And she got into this sort of obsessive state where she kept watching the news and kept looking for the next headline and she couldn't stop talking about it and she wouldn't let her kids go anywhere. And then she said to me, look, I had an epiphany one day. I stopped watching local news and I suddenly felt healthier and I started letting my kids do things again. And, you know, that, that interview was actually one of the most fascinating I did because it made me realize that, look, we sort of sometimes say, you know, watching TV is bad for your health. It's not just a saying, it really ratchets up the stress levels and the cortisol levels, and it does bad things to your blood pressure and your heart rate. And if you stop watching the local news, you don't get worse informed because local news doesn't really inform you at all. It just feeds you a stream of if it bleeds, it leads stories. If you stop watching local news, your blood pressure goes down. You start making more rational parenting decisions. You stop viewing the entire world as a crime scene in the making. And, you know, so you know, maybe one solution to this is we should all unplug a little bit and analyze a little bit more before we sort of click, click, click on the next terrible news headline. But in that sense, are we really describing something that is U.S. American phenomenon or are we talking about something that's a global phenomenon? I think a bit of both. I mean, certainly the strongman phenomenon, the idea of these sort of not fascist, but whatever we want to call them, these authoritarian leaders coming in and saying, I alone can fix the problems. That's not American. I mean, you know, we're the biggest country on the block, so we're seeing more of what happens when a strong man gets elected. But it's also happened in Turkey. It's happened in Russia. It's happened in India with Hindu nationalism. Um, and, you know, it hasn't quite happened in Europe, in Western Europe, but Marine Le Pen came second, um, Geert Wilders came second. So these strong men authoritarian or strong women authoritarian leaders, I think playing the fear card and using social media in a very destructive way, um, that's probably global. I do think there are some things more specific both to America and also for reasons I don't quite understand to the Anglo-legal culture. Um, the panic around parenting and the panic around abuse, that seems to be England, America, to a certain extent, Canada and Australia. You haven't seen that panic in most other countries. In fact, if you go to many other countries today, you routinely see six and seven-year-old kids walking to school. You see them with their backpacks. Um, when I was in Switzerland a few years ago, you know, you'd see kids as young as four or five and they had sort of special get-up. It wasn't like luminous bike vests. I can't remember what it was, but they had sort of signature clothing they were supposed to wear and people knew that that meant you helped them cross the roads because they were these young kids going to school by themselves. Well here, first of all, if a stranger approached a young kid to try and help them across the street, the kid would run a mile because they'd been trained to fear that stranger. And second of all, the stranger wouldn't do it 
because they know the legal risk they run by approaching a kid and saying, can I help you? Um, and I, I don't know why that's a sort of Anglo thing, but it does seem to have taken root in the Anglo legal culture more yeah. than elsewhere. I remember reading Adorno, who was very concerned about strains of irrationalism or rationality in American culture. And I was watching, I think I was still in Greece, uh, watching a clip that a friend showed me, a woman from, say, Berkeley or somewhere around us, not too far, was voting for Trump because, and she's an organic farmer, because Trump is the first leader to actually say and make a public statement about chemtrails. I didn't even know what chemtrails were. And she was absolutely convinced that this is going to be his first order. And that's why this very nice person, organic farmer from Berkeley, voted for Trump. So what are we talking about here? What kind of complex of irrationality, fear, well, what is this? Well, you know, this, this I think comes back to the US Taxpayers Party analogy <laughs> I was saying 20 years ago that, you know, at the time it was a party that basically brought together conspiracy theorists. And so the, the contrails, this idea that you have geoengineering going on through chemicals being like dropped from jet, jet plane exhaust. Um, that was one of the conspiracies. And, you know, the other one was anti-vaccination. This idea there was this pharmaceutical conspiracy to create a generation of autistic children. And, you know, vaccines have been doing something good health-wise for over 100 years. And they've made a huge impact on diseases like polio and diphtheria and all these diseases that used to kill just unfathomably large numbers of people. And suddenly you have groups saying, well, we think this thing is bad. And even though there isn't you know, a huge amount of scientific evidence to say it's bad, that conspiracy takes root. And I think that when you're talking about the organic farmer saying, I voted for Trump because he's talking about contrails, Trump basically had a grab bag of conspiracies that he knew would work for different audiences. So depending on his audience, he was an anti-vaccine person one moment, he was a contrails conspiracist another moment, he believed that there was this plot to undermine American competitiveness that was launched by the Chinese in the form of climate change hoax. Whether or not Trump actually believed in any of these conspiracies, I don't know, because his interior self is so hard to fathom, because he really is this sort of plastic character that morphs depending on the audience. Um, but Trump's genius, and that's, you know, a charitable word, Trump's demonic, whatever it is, um, was to work out what political hay you could make if you glommed on to whatever conspiracy or whatever paranoia or whatever fear would play with each individual audience. And so he went around the country and he tapped into these different fears and these different conspiracies, um, and he somehow created a viable political coalition. And, you know, the history books one day, assuming he doesn't blow us all up with nuclear weapons, assuming there are history books to be written one day, that is going to be one of the most bizarre things to try and explore is how an entire political party could essentially give itself over to these conspiracy fads um, and could remake itself around it, throw all its existing ideologies out the window and replace them with this attachment to conspiracy. So if somebody would to accuse you of elitism, of now saying that this is just populism, that these are fears of people who are somehow less worthy, less educated, well, how would you answer? Because this is usually what people receive when they make statements like that. How would I answer? I used to be a bit more diplomatic on it. How would I answer now? If you look at the people who voted for Trump, there's a lot of talk about how it was the white working class, and partly it was the white working class, which has some privilege, the privilege of race. But actually, the people who really voted for Trump were wealthier whites, white middle-class people, and even college-educated whites, who one would think by virtue of college education would know better than to hand the country over to a crackpot. College-educated whites voted for Trump, presumably, at least in part, because he was promising huge tax cuts, which would benefit them. So how do I respond to that? There is no group in this country more privileged than white men. There just isn't. And those are the people who voted for Trump. So to call someone who's against Trump because Trump believes in bigotry and racism and everything else, to call that elitist? No, that's just intelligent, common-sense critique of an increasingly bigoted moment. 
And, you know, I get these emails. I get these emails saying, you are liberal, elitist, piece of shit, this, that, and the other. Go back to England, you Jewish, this, that, and the other. And that's the tenor. And apparently, apparently talking like that is just plain spoken, homespun language in Trump's America. And actually thinking about the issues makes you an elitist. So I guess my answer is, if that's what an elitist is, happy to be an elitist. You're in a good company. Um, but this brings me to the, to the question of, that's actually in the, in the book. Uh, and it's about the end of the American dream. So what is the American dream? And weren't these tendencies, as you yourself mentioned before, always somehow present? And how do we think about American dream right now? You seem to think that it's ending, or that it already ended. Well, the American dream is a marketing ploy. American dream always uh -huh. was a marketing ploy. It was a phrase that was developed in the 1930s to market America. It was a very good phrase. And it marketed America very well. And you know, the, the, the power of the American dream is that it plays into something that's partly true and partly mythological. The myth is that America's never been this sort of peace-loving, anyone-can-succeed place that we like to think it is. But the reality is that it's been partly that, that for large numbers of people, it was a place you could make your fortune, it was a place you could have political freedom, it was a place you could have religious freedom, and it was a place where you could reinvent yourself. So it wasn't all a myth but it relied on optimism, like all dreams do. Dreams rely on a sense that the future will be better than the past. They rely on this sense that we're able to perfect ourselves. They rely on this sense that we can do anything if we come together with goodwill and with creativity and with moral energy and political energy, and we can reinvent. And so even though it was never 100% true, it is true that at our best, this country did remarkable things, culturally, spiritually, politically, scientifically, and so on. We built things that looked beautiful. We created music that you know, helped define the 20th century. We created art that was phenomenally wondrous. You can't do that if your world is defined by fears. I mean, I guess, you know, you can paint Edward Munch's The Scream, but he already did that. <laughs> you can't define an entire culture creatively and politically and philosophically around fear and anxiety. Or if you do, it's a very unpleasant walled-in culture. Um, you know, I, I've been trying to think of historical analogies. You know, America in 2016, on top of the world, by far the most powerful country on earth, by far the most economically, militarily, politically, diplomatically dominant. We have right of passage all over the world. We don't need visas to travel. We, we pretty much have everything. All the privileges that go with power. We can borrow money from the entire world at negligible rates of interest because people trust our currency. We can buy oil cheaply because people want to sell to our markets. We have almost everything. And at the height of our power in 2016, we voted for somebody who wanted to wall us off and barricade us from the rest of the world and who wanted to ban the rest of the world from coming into our country and sharing our culture and who believes that immigration lessens us instead of strengthens us. And I'm trying to think, you know, when else in human history did a country at the pinnacle of its power turn inward so suddenly and I can't. The only example I can think of is when China, 500 years ago, suddenly turned inwards and instead of sending ships to sail around the world as it was doing, turned in on itself and became this introverted empire. And it's an imperfect analogy, but it's the only one I can think of. There's no other example of a country at the height of its power so suddenly deciding to wall itself off from the rest of the world. But I don't see how the American dream survives behind walls. Just, to me, it makes no sense. Uh, many sociologists are saying, or now and for actually a couple of decades, that the United States is approaching this moment of complete decline, which is usually followed by a sense of decadence. So to what extent do you think that material economic factors and everything else actually influences the shaping, particular shaping of collective psyche that you are describing? 
very much. And, you know, partly the impetus for my book was the previous work I've been doing on poverty and on inequality and on incarceration, which defined my work for about 15, 20 years. And, you know, nothing comes out of the blue. I mean, we, we can sort of look at 2016 as this before and after moment, but there were certainly indicators that things were going wrong. Um, the level of inequality in this country was higher than it had been since the late 19th century. The number of people we incarcerated was higher than any other country on earth, higher than Russia, higher than China. Um, number of African-Americans we incarcerate as a percentage of the population is higher than the number of black South Africans who are incarcerated in apartheid. We incarcerate more people in America than Brazil did under the junta. So when you start looking at these things and you start seeing there's something going wrong there, um, the social fabric was being frayed very, very profoundly way before Trump came on the scene, um, way before 2008, which magnified a lot of these things. Um, but you can go back 40, 50 years, and these are long, long trends that were emerging slowly at first and then picking up steam. Um, but the other thing you can look at is what happened at the end of the Cold War, that for 45 years, from the end of World War II to 1989, 1990, part of America's raison d'etre was the way it counterbalanced the Soviet Union and the way it presented itself globally as an alternative model in this global structure for influence. And I actually think very much, and the more I think about it, the more I think it, that we needed that counterbalance because that counterbalance in some ways brought out the best in us. Not in all ways, we did horrible things, foreign policy especially, but domestically, we had a show that we could create a good society for many, many people. We had to make it a society that was better than the one being offered by the Soviet Union. And I think it pushed us towards social reforms and it pushed us towards trying to change the race relations in the country and so on and so forth. And at the end of the Cold War, there was, this moment where we thought that the world was ours and we could reshape it exactly how we'd liked because our enemy, the Soviet Union, no longer existed. And Francis Fukuyama writes this now laughable thesis about the end of history. And at the end of history, I guess it's like the um, cafe at the end of the universe or whatever, but at the end of history, the entire world is going to essentially look and feel American that we transcend history. It's just, I don't know, this Hegelian notion or something. We transcend history and the world becomes eternally American. And that lasted about 10 minutes and then history began again. And it began again with a vengeance. And we started seeing it in the new battles um, around terrorism, around religious extremism and so on. And I don't think America has navigated that post-war world very well. I don't think it's brought out the best in us. Um, I don't think it's encouraged us to do good things domestically, and I don't think it's encouraged us to do good things on the international global stage. And I think what we're seeing now at the end point of this, a generation on, 26, 27 years on from the end of the Cold War, we're seeing an America that looks increasingly like the Soviet Union at the end of the Soviet Union's time, relying on coercion instead of cooperation. You know, the, one of the contrasts between America and the Soviet Union was always that America's alliances were voluntary and the Soviets were coercive. America's alliances in Europe, for example, the Germans, the English, the French, they wanted to be our friends, as opposed to in the Warsaw Pact, where the Russians were forcing cooperation out of the Hungarians or the Poles or the Czechs. And now if you look at it and you look at the way Trump talks to our purported allies, there's no sense of a group of friendly nations. There's a sense of a powerful country willing to exploit its military potential and willing to browbeat anybody and everybody. And if you talk, I mean, we were just talking before, before the show began about going back to Europe this summer and talking to people about America. And there is this sense of horror and bemusement in the rest of the world about what is happening in this country. And there is a loathing for the American government like I have never experienced in my life. And I grew up in England during the Reagan era when a goodly number of English people absolutely detested Reagan. But the scale of hatred for Trump's administration is like nothing else. And I think that really does resemble the latter period of the Soviet Union when it was all about coercion. 
Interesting that you would mention Soviet Union. There is a lovely book about uh, Soviet Union, the last generation of Soviet Union, which has a title like, it was already over and we didn't know it. <laughs> but the thing about this is, Alexei Yurtrek, I think, is the name of the author he teaches in Berkeley. And he introduces this concept of hyper-normalization. And he says, basically, we all knew, actually, that it was over. Nevertheless, this empire, this situation that we lived in, we pretended that everything is fine. And we continued living as everything was okay, although we knew that this is the end of the empire, the end of the great Soviet Union. And I wonder if the fear that you are describing has some similarities maybe in this. I think it does, um, both to the end of the Soviet Union and also to the end of some of the other empires of the recent past. You know, Stefan Zweig writes about the end of the Austrian Empire. And one minute you had this empire that was continental in size and multicultural and multilinguistic and multinational and bestrode Central Europe. And the next minute after a war, that empire had been shattered beyond repair and the core of it was this tiny country of Austria of a few million people and the great diplomats and the great generals and the great political statesmen were selling cigarettes on street corners. And quite literally, you know, they'd gone from being diplomats in the halls of power to being kiosk owners selling newspapers and cigarettes. And I do think that our moment might be like that moment that Stefan Zweig is describing, that, you know, something has broken and it's been breaking for a while. But when you look at the debased nature of the Trump political moment, and you look at the contrast with Trump and his language, and Kennedy, let's say, at the height of American power and his language, it's absolutely startling. And however you doll it up, there's that famous phrase, you can put, a li put lipstick on a pig and it's still a pig. However much the New York Times or anyone else tries to talk about normalizing Trump whenever he makes a semi-presidential speech, one presidential speech does not unmake that pig. He's still a pig in lipstick. And, you know, have we fallen beyond repair? We might get a better president next time and we might be able to remake some of the alliances that are frayed under Trump, but we will no longer be the indispensable nation because countries don't get second chances on that. Um, and I, I, I grew up in England. And England, when my grandmother was born in the East End of London in 1917, controlled a quarter of the world. And when my dad was born in 1942, it still had the Raj, and it was you know, obviously under threat by World War, but it was still a very, very powerful nation. And when I was born in 1972, the empire had already shattered beyond repair. And England had gone from being the most powerful country on earth to being a bit player. And I think that sort of, that experience growing up in a post-imperial England maybe gives me some sense of what's happening here. That America, whatever it emerges post-Trump, and something will emerge post-Trump, whether it's good or whether it's bad, whatever emerges post-Trump, America's role on the global stage will be diminished because you can't boss people about and you can't insult people and you can't threaten people for years on end and then afterwards say, oh, we were just kidding. We want to go back to being the morally indispensable nation. It just doesn't happen. Um, and so again, coming back to, you know, is it really over? America's role as the indispensable nation, I suspect, is over. Whether or not the American dream is over, I think, you know, there's plenty of room to recreate very good things in America but we're going to be a humbler nation at the end of this, despite all of the swagger of the Trump years. At the back end of it, we will be humbler, I suspect. And many people to the left, to the progressive end of the political spectrum, would say that these discontinuities have started already with Obama. And I know that you wrote a book about Obama. <laughs> and uh, the problems of Obama's presidency and the London Review of Books just featured several essays emphasizing continuities between policies of Obama's presidency and Trump. So how, what do you think about that? Well, I think there are some continuities. You know, there's, there's obviously a huge difference, which is that Obama coated his politics in sophistication and he talked well and 
he had the respect of the global community and Trump speaks badly deliberately and he doesn't care about the respect of the global community and he's brash and he you know, puts things out there in the crudest way possible. But it is true there are some continuities. So Trump's horrible immigration policy, unfortunately, there are some continuities with Obama's because when you look at it, the Faustian bargain Obama made was he would do DACA but he would also deport more people than any other American president. And so there is some kind of continuity there. Um, we were just talking again before, before the conversation about this recently announced decision an hour ago that they were going to liberalize Trump's, uh, Obama's drone policy, that they were going to make it easier to kill more people who are lower-end terrorists. They were going to now use drones to go after foot soldiers. Well, it's morally appalling. But it's appalling in a moral way, more so than Obama's, only in degree. Because Obama had already normalized this idea that you could use these pilotless drones to inflict killing thousands of miles away, cost-free to Americans. Now, I'm not saying there's you know, endless similarities between Obama and Trump, because I actually think the differences are more stark than similarities. But I do think in some areas, you see underlying continuities. Um, you know, I think Trump, you know, one, one of the things about Trump, it seems to me, is his entire political rationale is to scrub Obama from the history books. It isn't just about sort of difference in policy. It's to obliterate Obama's presence in the White House. So even when Trump actually agrees with what Obama did, he has to make it look like he's obliterating Obama's legacy. So even when, you know, whether or not he pulls out of the Iranian nuclear deal, let's say. If he stays in, which everybody is telling him to do, he's going to have to make it look like he's all but pulling out simply so he can distinguish himself from Obama. And, you know, again, coming back to, you know, the rationales in play here, you know, maybe it's just because he thinks that Obama wasn't a very good president. I suspect that it's much more racial. I suspect there is a real racial animus amongst Trump's, amongst Trump supporters, among his base. And that animus basically says there was an African-American man in the White House. That was a mistake. We're going to scrub all historical legacy. Um, and it's terrifying to me that, that you would have a political project based around that kind of message and that kind of intent. As we are moving towards the end, uh we were describing, we were talking about a sense of futurelessness, sense of loss of hope, fear. And in thinking about how to reconstitute, how to or constitute a new community, a different kind of politics, a different kind of polis, how do we do that? Where do you see hope? We spend a lot of time discussing, of course, you in your book, the topic is fear. But where do you see the hope coming from? Well, I do actually. I mean, at the end of the book, I do end with messages of hope because I do think people are thinking about alternative models because actually many, many people realize that you can't base community around fear. And so whether it's religious groups, whether it's local environmental groups, civil rights groups, um, there are all kinds of creative political conversations going on about other ways of approaching community, other ways of organizing, other ways of prioritizing values. Um, you know, one of the most hopeful interviews I did was with a crime victim, a guy who lived in Oakland, I think it was Oakland, um, and he'd been beaten brutally at a bus stop one night by a group of young men, and he'd been brain damaged and been in a coma for a few days. And um, I met him years later, and he was still suffering. He was still clearly impaired. But he said to me, look, I woke up and I forgave the person who did it. And um, he ended up writing the man letters in prison. He ended up trying to visit him. The prison actually wouldn't let him visit. Um, but he was absolutely convinced that you had to find some way somewhere for forgiveness because otherwise it would cripple him as an individual and it would also just create a political dead end, a moral dead end. And... It was one of the more inspiring interviews that I did because this guy had been through hell. I mean, if anyone had a reason to want vengeance, it was him. He, he'd been beaten senseless. His brain had been injured. But he didn't want any part of vengeance. He just didn't. It wasn't who he was and it wasn't what he wanted. Um, and I do think 
that stories like that provide alternative models. Um, another example would be the Tucson Samaritans. You know, I have all kinds of horrible stories in my book about what happens on the border to undocumented immigrants. But one of the hopeful stories is there are these people in Tucson. I don't know if anyone of you here has been to Tucson in the deserts there, but it's really hot. It's brutal landscape. It goes up to 120 degrees in June and July and August. And migrants routinely die of dehydration in the desert. And so these Samaritans would go out and they'd study where the trails are and they'd work out where people were walking um, based on sort of detritus left behind, pieces of clothing, etc. And they'd go out and they'd leave these water bottles. And the horrible thing was when you go out, and I, I walked with them, when you go out to these trails, frequently you found these bottles which had been slashed. And they said, yeah, the Border Patrol slashes the bottles when they find them. Um, so, you know, the horror is that U.S. government administrations are making it more likely people will die of dehydration in the desert. The hope is that there were dozens and dozens of these people trekking bottles of water out into the desert to at least make it less likely someone would die of dehydration. Um, I, I guess here's the other hope. You know, I, I was in Normandy in France this summer with my son. He wanted to see some of the um, D-Day landing beaches. And when you go to these beaches and the cliffs, you can still see in some of them the Nazi encampments, these vast, vast concrete bunkers where there were machine guns and um, artillery pieces and barbed wire everywhere. And you realize the Nazis made continental Europe impregnable. You know, they, they put in as much skill and ingenuity as they could to make the entire continent impregnable so they could create this nightmare vision across Europe. And it didn't work. For all of their military might and for all of their brutality and all of their willingness to, ki to kill, their 1,000-year Reich lasted 12 years, 12 lousy, sordid years. I don't think you can wall a country like America in. I don't. And I don't think you can create a culture permanently based around fear and suspicion because I think that we as individuals are better than that and I think that this country ultimately is better than that. So that's my hope. Thank you, and I think this is a really good good place to finish the conversation. I was hoping you'd find an optimistic way for me to end it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us tonight. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>